Living in small towns and rural areas my entire life, I really do love sharing these types of stories. There's just something about hearing other people's perspectives and experiences in similar areas that I grew up in. I myself saw all kinds of strange things while running through the woods playing with my friends and by myself. And I'm sure you have too if you grew up in a very similar circumstance. So, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode along those lines, whether it's in a rural area or some sort of small town, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. Don't forget to slap that like button, subscribe if you're new, and get ready for these creepy and downright strange rural horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. A Strange Set of Encounters by... Brooke F. Hi Swamp Dweller, my name is Brooke. I am a 22-year-old female, and the two short encounters I came to share today are from when I was about 9 or 10 years old. Growing up in rural Virginia was peaceful. Sure, there were foxes, coyotes, bear, deer, and the usual wildlife on the East Coast. Yet, I was never afraid of the animals always way more fearful of what we don't know is out there. I've always been in tune with the supernatural, but these encounters terrified me. The first story I would like to share, I was out in our backyard giving our dog some food. We had many dogs at the time as it was a second source of income for my family to sell puppies. Walking down, I noticed my sister walking down into the woods. What was odd is she was on the other side of the fence. Now to get back there, you would have to go up and around our vast front yard, get all the way back to there, and then walk down. I had a weird feeling, but I called her to ask what she was doing. I never got a response. Starting to get scared, I ran back into our house only to see my sister was already home in the living room. She was wearing a completely different outfit from the one in the woods. My mom never believed me. Maybe she was scared and didn't want me fretting over it every night as I was already having trouble sleeping naturally. I eventually let it go, but never forgot. Sometime after, I knew I was in fifth grade at the time at the very least, I had to catch the bus early, and it was rather chilly outside, so I had to put on a jacket as I was fixing my hair in our bathroom. Think of a trailer with an additional bedroom on the backside. It was built off where we originally had a back deck and back door. Naturally, the door was left open as you can't lock it from the inside. The bathroom and bedroom were directly across from each other, and at the end of the hall, maybe five feet to the left, was my sister's bedroom. I'm really sorry. I hope that all makes sense. As I was standing in the bathroom, a creature, maybe six or seven feet tall, came out of the bedroom across the hallway. It was lanky. Its skin was sticking to the bone and crawling on all fours with red eyes and sharp teeth. I was absolutely terrified. It stopped and stared at me momentarily before crawling into my still-sleeping sister's bedroom. I couldn't move my body, and I was entirely in shock. I didn't know what to do. My parents were gone for work for the day, and no one ever believed me anyway. Eventually, I dropped this too, afraid they would hospitalize me for being mentally ill. At this time, I had indeed watched the Supernatural episode about the Wendigo, but never had I thought it was real. However, I think I may have encountered a skimwalker. I have no idea. I remember sketching this thing out one time, and I can still see it in the back of my head. I have no idea what it could have been, but for now, 
I'm always going to try to be respectful of nature and the things around me. If anybody has any idea of what this thing was, please let me know in the comments. Who is the Jenkins County Jane Doe? By Swamp Dweller. Valentine's Day is one of those less relevant, yet somehow busier holidays that many lovers across the globe partake in every single year. I know personally I love showering my loved ones with gifts on this day to show them how much I care. It seems not everyone is as festive as us though. It seems some people have more nefarious and sinister intentions. This story is a tragic and unsolved case from the late 1980s. This is the story of the Jenkins County Jane Doe in the rural South. To begin this story, we need to go back in time to 1988 in the small town of Millen, Georgia. A man and his girlfriend were scouring the area for cans and bottles for money. Not my ideal way to spend Valentine's Day, but you gotta do what you gotta do sometimes. While the man's girlfriend waited in their car, he jumped into a dumpster to find some more cans. Before we go any further, I should mention that days prior to this event, a foul odor was reported around this area. No one had seemingly thought much about it though. As this guy was searching around for cans, he found the source of the wretched smell. This man discovered a duffel bag. He opened the bag with his pocket knife and instantly regretted it. He had made a genuine, gruesome discovery. There were body parts wrapped in plastic stuffed into this duffel bag. The body parts were severely decomposed at this point. At first, the man was shocked and didn't even know what to do with this find. For some reason, his first reaction was to get a friend to come look at the contents to confirm that it was indeed a bag of body parts. This was indeed exactly what it was though, a dismembered, decomposed body of a woman. Who was this poor woman you might ask? This is a true ongoing mystery. Around 4.45 that same day, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, aka the GBI, and the local police were on the scene. Due to Millen being such a small town, the local coroner didn't actually have the experience needed for this crime scene. Since the local facilities were not equipped for this, the autopsy was conducted in Atlanta by a GBI coroner. It was reported that the woman had been in the dumpster since Friday the 12th, two days before she was discovered on Valentine's Day. But reports show she was dead for probably at least four to seven days. There were no apparent signs of injury, but her feet had been bound. Many other tests were run on Jane Doe, and she came back negative for any drug or seminal evidence, which would have indeed been left behind if an assault occurred. Unfortunately, no cause of death could be 100% determined, which makes profiling the killer much harder. Rumors do speculate it could have been due to some sort of asphyxiation. No matter how she died though, she is considered to be a murder victim. Since Jane Doe's remains were in such bad shape, the post-mortem photos were never released. At least, I, I couldn't find them anyway. There are two available reconstruction photos of Jane Doe though. The first sketch was made up by GBI forensic artist Marla Lawson in 1988. It was admittedly not to be as detailed as the composite that was later made, 
The main goal of the composite was to show people what Jane Doe may have looked like. She was estimated to be somewhere between the ages of 16 or 25. She was roughly 5 foot 4 to 5 foot 5 in height and would probably have weighed around 135 to 145 pounds. She was described as having a slim build. She has long, thick brown hair. It might even be black. There is a rather large dispute in her eye color, though. Multiple sources report that it's listed as brown. In others, it's listed as unknown. Her dental records have shown that she did have good teeth, her upper teeth were somewhat crooked, and she had recently had a lower wisdom tooth removed not too long before she was killed. The last detail I could find is that Jane Doe's legs were freshly shaven. Another detail that has been up for much speculation and confusion is Jane Doe's race and ethnicity have not been identified. This may seem trivial, but knowing a victim's race and ethnicity can reveal much information about the culprit. Media rumors speculate that she was Asian with the possibility of being mixed, though local talk disputed that fact and assumed she was in fact Latina or Native American. Marla Lawson, the GBI forensic artist who created the reconstruction of Jane Doe based on the post-mortem pictures, thought she was of Asian or white descent as well. This stalemate and conflicting details could be a real monkey wrench in the progression of this investigation. Inside the duffel bag, officials found a pillow, bedspread, bed sheets, and a towel alongside the body parts. The pillow and quilt seemed to be from the same matching set. They both had the same rose design. The bed sheets reportedly had no procedures or unique markings. The towel had some sort of butterfly design printed on it. The bedding was eventually linked to a Korean manufacturer. Officials can't be sure, but they think they can link these items to some sort of property that Jane Doe could have potentially owned herself. Now, I did find more details on this case while I was digging around online. I studied deeper into Millen, Georgia and the surrounding areas, specifically in 1988 when this crime occurred. For some context, Millen is a tiny town. Even today, the city boasts just over 3,100 residents. In the 1980s, the town only had just a few hundred more residents sitting at around 3,800 in its prime. The city of Millen at the time had a majority of its population made up of African-American families. Asian-American families were a tiny minority in Millen at the time. After looking at the historical table of the town's population, you can see that Asian-Americans only made up 0.17% of the population. If we look at the Native American population, it was even less at only 0.06% of the people in Millen. So if Jane Doe came from any of these racial backgrounds, then a quick look into the residents at the time who fit those backgrounds could help determine who this girl is. Speculation that does argue against this point, though, is that due to the demographics of the area and that the fact that undocumented migrant workers came through the site seasonally, it is suspected that Jane Doe may not even be from the area at all, actually. It is common for serial offenders to abduct their victims and drop their bodies off in unrelated locations to confuse investigators. More specifically, the dumpster Jane Doe was found in was located off Kaiser Road and Old Perkins Road. Though the original dumpster was taken as evidence, the area has been cleared now to enlarge the road, there are endless speculations on who, where, and why Jane Doe was killed. 
Something she could have been a part of was this ever-growing human trafficking epidemic that was... This was particularly bad at the time, especially for Asian immigrant women who were more vulnerable and easily manipulated. While reading write-ups on this case, I stumbled upon a Reddit post that mentioned that in Georgia at the time, these women came from various nationalities, many were Asian, and exceptionally high number were originally from China. It has been suggested that Jane Doe could have been a victim of human trafficking and could have worked in one of these many illegal massage parlors or spas, which were merely a front for brothels and human trafficking. Some more exciting details noted at the time is that the man who initially found Jane Doe mentioned he saw a small brown car parked nearby. When he returned with his friend, he noted the car was now gone. I was able to find rumblings of additional reports of this alleged small brown car as well, but nothing damning would come of this report. During the interview, the local police were told some interesting information from two children. They said they had been playing near the dumpster when they heard somebody crying out and said it was something mumbled. Something around the lines of, My baby! My baby! At around the same time, they claim a car matching the description of the small brown vehicle pulled up to the dumpster. They described a man and a woman who were both in their 50s somewhere. They got out of the car and proceeded to throw something away. On top of these developments, when police searched the dumpster further, they found a half-full gas can. It isn't apparent if they think this is related, but I figured I'd also throw it in there anyway. We don't have too much to go off of. It is speculated online that the killer probably planned to burn the body. When Jane Doe was discovered, many leads came in from the public. Before I wrap up this case and open up the discussion in the comments with you guys, there are a few leads that have come in. I know earlier that the only known witnesses to this event said they saw an older couple dropping something off in a car similar to one that was reported, but the most significant lead involved a 23-year-old man named Johnny Young. Johnny was a Millen native but lived in New Jersey at the time. Johnny was looked into after his friends called the police alluding that they should try to talk to Johnny about the murder. Even more interesting, Johnny's uncle claimed to have seen him with a Puerto Rican woman who he had never seen before but matched Jane Doe's description. Here's where things got even more questionable. Johnny's uncle claims his nephew was involved with two drug smugglers. According to the uncle and a woman who also lived in the community, one of these smugglers was dating this unidentified girl. Johnny had run away with the smuggler's money and the girl. Johnny did admit to knowing one of the smugglers, but not the other one. He also stated he had no idea of some Puerto Rican girl. The GBI could not substantiate any of this evidence, but it is definitely something that we should put out there in the forefront, because it seems like a lot of people are talking about this, and a lot of the information is kind of coinciding with what we know. With our last twist in this case coming in 1991, Deputy Campbell of the Jenkins County Sheriff's Office received a phone call from an anonymous caller in New Jersey. This caller claimed they knew who killed the Jenkins County Jane Doe. The caller referred to Deputy Campbell by his first name and asked, Do you remember that girl? And said that he was tired of running. According to this caller, he claimed he had tried to turn himself into the New Jersey police, but they had not believed him. The caller told Deputy Campbell to come pick him up and hung up. Deputy Campbell could never contact that caller again though, but he firmly believes that Johnny Young called him that day. 
They eventually tracked Johnny down and asked him all about this stuff, but of course, he said he had no idea who made the call and it wasn't him. He relayed the exact same story as the first interview, but he did add in some new details like how his uncle and another man had shown him the dumpster at some point before Jane Doe had been found. The GBI re-interviewed Johnny's family and friends, but this would of course end up as a dead end. Since this initial lead though, no new information has been developed in this case. Johnny Young, the only suspect we had, died in 2006. So, I guess at this point, we may never know what happened to the Jenkin County Jane Doe. The Poplarville Incident by Madison D. Hello, Swamp Dweller. I recently found your channel about two days ago, and I knew I had to submit a story. This happened in 2016, in a small town called Poplarville, Mississippi. My brother and I were out hunting. We live on an immense piece of land known as Indian Land. But anyway, on this night, we were not expecting to shoot anything, just go scope around. We typically pack on horses, but we decided not to this night. We just didn't want to spook anything. But as we walked closer to our hunting grounds, I started to feel unsure and uneasy. I asked my brother if he felt the same, but he seemingly didn't, so we continued. Sometime about an hour after we made it to the hunting stand, climbed in the air and looked around, hoping to spot something. We spotted two young bucks and a doe, not bad, but then that uneasy feeling came back and all the deer had suddenly scattered and everything went eerily silent. There was no sound, the wind had stopped, I looked at my brother and I could tell he was feeling the same thing. Then we heard something moving around in the tree line and it started to smell ungodly, like somebody had the worst B.O. and garbage ever. It was so bad that my brother literally threw up. We listened for a moment and then we started hearing movement in the tree line, and then we saw it. It was a buck-like creature with a set of antlers, but instead of, like, skin and stuff, it was just an exposed skull. It looked like it had completely rotted out. The eye sockets were two dark red eyes, and they were fixed on my brother and me. The thing was watching us intently, and it made an unpleasant smile. As it watched us, my brother and I were frozen in fear, not daring to make a move, but my brother unfroze, grabbed his gun, and shot at it twice, hitting it once. This thing let out an unsettling scream, something I have never heard in my lifetime. We heard it run off, so me and my brother scurried down and ran back to our house as fast as we can. We made it to the house out of breath. My brother asked me what the heck I thought that was, and I told him I have read stories of things called the Wendigo. My grandmother had also told us about Wendigos as we were growing up, and apparently they roamed the land. I don't know if I'll ever see that thing again, but I surely hope I don't. I still feel uneasy from this. The Weird Guy by Far Divide 2510 At the time of this, I was a 15-year-old boy. Keep this in context that I live in a small town in southern Ontario, and crime wasn't very widespread. This happened in February 2022, 
There was lots of snow this year. I was excited because of the week school break. So, while my younger siblings were at school, I wasn't because I had no exams for COVID canceling them and all that good stuff. So I was sitting at home and I decided that I wanted to go to Tim Hortons since I was craving one of their hot coffees. So I grabbed my earbuds and put on a podcast while I started walking. I believe it was either Swamp Dweller or something along those lines. So I got off my street, which keep in mind is this small road. Hence, I walked onto a longer road which took about 20 minutes to walk down to get to the main street I had to get to. Getting to Main Street, I now had to walk another 20 minutes to get to the Tim Hortons I was going to, so I continued down the road. I wasn't thinking about much, I was kind of just lost in my own head when suddenly a man in his young 20s stopped me about halfway down the road by touching my shoulder, and I was kind of shocked. I took my earbud out and looked at him. He then asked me questions that started innocently like, Do you know where a cannabis place is? I said no. They then asked how old I was and I lied, saying I was 16. He then asked me if I had a phone. I said I did, but it was low battery. He asked me if I had a lighter where I was going and if I knew the bus schedule, which I lied about most things, especially where I was going. I just pointed in a direction and saying I was going over there. And then he said, okay, and crossed the street. I was so shocked. I took note of the guy just in case something happened to me. He was in his young 20s. He was wearing a flannel shirt, blue jeans, wearing a backpack, and he was African-American, about 5'10". I kept looking across the street periodically, and there he was, always walking in the same direction as me, following me from the distance, always staring at me with this weird look on his face. I then saw him go near an apartment building, so I thought I overreacted because I couldn't see him anymore. The apartment building was near Tim Hortons, so I went inside and ordered a drink. But before I got my drink, I turned around and the guy was all of a sudden there, staring at me from behind a pillar. I tried to just not freak out. Once he noticed that I saw him, he walked to the bathroom. I grabbed my drink and I walked as fast as possible into a Sobeys nearby so I could lose him. I then took extra measures walking behind a home hardware store and walking farther because I was so scared that I didn't want them to follow me home, know where I lived, or any weird stuff like that. I've listened to way too many scary story podcasts. I went to a no-frills nearby so he would never be able to find me. I was very cautious on my way back and looked at all the possibilities that could have happened. I reflected on myself and I only told close friends and family this story. You're probably wondering, why didn't you call the police? Well, that's because I didn't want to cause a problem if I needed to. And this was not necessarily a crime, you know, it's not like it's really against the law to stare at people and freak them out and follow them into establishments. I'm just lucky I got away before it got any worse. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Now, with HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to grocery stores and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit and trusted by the swamp for nearly three years straight. It's the most festive time of year and HelloFresh is here to help make the most of every moment. From holiday hosting to dinners during busy weeknights, you can count on HelloFresh to deliver fresh ingredients and seasonal recipes. Tis the season for saving money wherever we can. HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout. So you can use those savings for holiday gifts or treat yourself. So what are you waiting for? Go to HelloFresh.com Swamped18 and use code Swamped18 for 18 free meals plus free shipping. Once again, go to HelloFresh.com Swamped18 and use code 
swamped 18 for 18 free meals plus free shipping. Join me and many others in the swamp and find out why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. The Fairy Ghost by Sonora Later in the evening, sometime around 7.30 one night, a buddy and I were bored, so we decided to go to Knight's Ferry, California. Knight's Ferry is a well-preserved, old small town on a river for tourists to whitewater raft or explore the old bridge and brick buildings, which have bars on all the entrances and windows for obvious reasons. Since it was after dark, the small village was all ours to wander and explore as we pleased. We did this for about half an hour our footsteps echoing off the looming dark old brick factories and stores. Finally, my buddy realized he had left his phone in his truck and left me near the old bridge while he went to check it. About ten minutes later, I was starting to wonder where he was, when he suddenly came jogging up to me, pale-faced, looking absolutely terrified. Through his huffing and puffing, he managed to get out that we had to leave because something had spooked the crap out of him. He waited to tell me until we were in his truck and on our way out, he told me that he had seen a shadow in the shape of a man with glowing yellow eyes standing in the doorway of one of the sidebars in the main buildings. He said that when he lit it up with his flashlight, he could see right through it. So of course, I made him turn around so I could check it out. When we got back there, he was absolutely refusing to get out of the truck. So I grabbed his flashlight and went back to the building to check it out alone. I thought I heard a few strange sounds and got chills and an eerie feeling, but unfortunately, I didn't see what he saw. I know this is a short, sweet story and it might not be that scary, but we were terrified in the moment, and I still wonder what he saw to this day that made him so scared. This guy's pretty tough and I've never really seen him scared since like that. North Dakota Horror by Andy J. This happened to some of my friends and me during the summer of 2021 after my high school graduation. I'm from a small town in North Dakota, and my buddies and I are the stereotypical rednecks of the city. You know, the type who drive loud trucks and is always armed somehow. We were doing what most teenagers do for fun in the Midwest, driving around and shooting signs. When we got low on ammunition, one of my friends, we'll call him Gary, recommends we check out this snowmobiling warming hut where he's experienced some paranormal activity. Now my buddies and I are all Christians and are very religious, but we couldn't pass up an opportunity like this either because we were also buzzed or because we were just dumb teenagers with nothing to do. So we arrive at the old shack and sit in my other buddies, who we'll call him Larry, F-150 truck. We turn off the headlights and the dash lights and look and listen. Even though I didn't believe in the paranormal at the time and was skeptical, I felt reassured that I had my AK with me. It's important to note that it is hot for a North Dakota evening and extremely dark out. We were all content, feeling good, and someone in the back seat suddenly said it felt like we were being watched. After he said that, I flipped the safety off my AK and tried to be aware as possible. Then he shouted, Holy crap! In the most terrified, helpless voice I'd ever heard come out of him, he tells us to look in Larry's rearview mirror. What I saw was genuinely horrifying. In this rearview mirror, this glowing white figure stands about 7 or 8 feet tall. It's only about 30 yards away from us peeking behind a tree. Larry immediately turns his truck on and throws it in reverse to get a better look. 
but just as abruptly as it had appeared, it was instantly gone. I fired a few rounds in its general direction, and immediately after I did, the air got freezing cold. After that, Larry floored it, tearing out of there like the Dukes of Hazard. We were all spooked to our bones, but one of my buddies, we'll call him Barry, says he saw nothing. Now, the white figure was terrifying, but the creepiest part is why Barry didn't see it when all the rest of us did. A Story Impossible to Believe by HorrorFam08 My father has had some terrifying encounters with these entities, but this spine-chilling tale comes from my uncle, a man of faith who walked the fine line between traditional beliefs and his Christian religion. When my father told me this story, I wondered, could it be true? Would this actually happen? That part I'll leave up to you. My father had five brothers, my dad being the sixth and the youngest. Stories of witches and the dark side of Navajo beliefs had come from his family, as did my mother's side. My uncle had worked for many churches, usually as a hired hand who could fix almost anything. Everything from cars to the usual maintenance needed in a home. He was the man you needed. One summer, while working on the water lines outside of a church, a pastor friend had come looking for him in need of answering a question and in need of some advice. Being a good friend, my uncle said he looked uncomfortable with what he was about to ask. The pastor asked him if he knew anything of skinwalkers. He was taken aback by this question and surprised that this friend would ask such a question. Then, coming to terms with his question, he was never so shocked. Many in his close group of friends sometimes asked what they were. Not trying to be rude, he asked the pastor why he wanted to know such things. The pastor begins to tell him a shocking story that would make anyone wonder if it actually happened. The pastor had become friends with a family on the Navajo reservation for the exact location I will not say. He had become relatively close with his mother and father since these were the first real friends he had made since moving to the reservation. The family was intimate with each other. They had a total of four kids and had an extended family around the area. Their only problem child was their youngest son, who sometimes would get in trouble with local law enforcement. At this point, he has gotten involved in a local gang. The father told him this gang was ruthless and at times violent. The family pleaded with the son to leave the gang and hoped he would get away, but to no avail. The son had been with that gang for about a year and had become close with the leader. The leader, the son explained he was a very violent and at times crazy individual and this made him very feared. The gang members whispered rumors that the leader dabbled in witchcraft rather than skinwalking. Unfazed by this, the son still stayed. Then one night, while hanging out at a member's house, the leader revealed that he did actually practice black magic and asked the son if he wanted to learn. Telling him yes, he wanted to know, the leader told him to meet at a destination later in the week. When the day came, the son had driven out to where the leader told him to meet. They had met at a cemetery. The son, at this point, was nervous and scared. The leader showed up a few minutes later and they both walked down to the cemetery. Now in this part, I will not explain traditional speaking, it's taboo to explain what went on, but what I will say is that they did horrifying things. The son left the gang, distanced himself from the entire crew, and became a born-again Christian. The son had not made contact with anyone until one night while in a shopping store. The son had not seen anyone from the gang for quite a few months at this point. 
This night of all nights, he had run into the leader. Shocked, the son tried to ignore him but was cornered by him, and he said the leader was angry with him and told him he betrayed him and that he was going to teach him, sending a cold chill down his spine. The leader told him to watch his back. Wherever he went, he would find him. Terrified, the son had come to the pastor and asked him what he should do. The pastor, somewhat shocked, didn't know what to do but told him to keep faith in his beliefs and everything should be okay. As soon as the pastor was done with the story, my uncle told him to tell the son to seek out traditional spiritual help and take it from there. Months had passed when my uncle asked about the son. The pastor said that he had given his advice and now they were living peacefully outside the reservation. You can believe the story if you want, but take this warning. Don't look for what's in the dark because there is always something out there that will answer back. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true rural and small town horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to elbow that like button in the face, subscribe if you're new, turn on notifications to be notified of new videos as I upload them multiple times a week on all things natural and supernatural. If you enjoyed these stories, definitely let me know which one was your favorite in the comments down below. I always love seeing your reviews. If you made it all the way to the end, be sure to comment today's code word, which is Blue Spike. It's always fun to see how many people make it to the end and confusing anybody who doesn't because if some people just come to the video, they look at the comments, they're like, what the heck's going on down here? I always pin the funniest one to the top of the comment section and it's a good time. Thank you guys so much for supporting the swamp the way you do. If you're listening to this right now, I am currently on tour with my band. We're traveling through the southeast playing in various states. You can find more information and dates with the link in the description. I'd really appreciate you checking out the music and giving us some support. I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.